Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. So before we get into the, the text this morning, I want to pause like we have the, the past couple of times. We're going to stop and we're going to think back. Um, and this morning, I want us to think back. If you have grown up in church, if you've been in church for a short period of time, it really, the, the timeline doesn't matter so much, but I want you to think back to one of the, the most memorable times of worship that you have experienced. And I'm not going to like embarrass you and make you share or anything like that, but it's, it's going to be important for us to be kind of holding on to uh, a moment that, that exists, something, and maybe when you look back here, like, you know, I can't really put my finger on it. There, there's not really something specific that, that's standing out. And if that's the case, that's okay. But, but I want us to just pause and just consider experiences that we have had as, as followers of Jesus as they relate to the worship that we bring. And for me, there was two specific examples that I am going to share because I'm standing up here and you're not, um, <laughs> about worship in my life. And there were two very, very different examples that, that immediately came to mind. And the first one was at a Promise Keepers gathering in, in Stockton, California. And for those of you who don't know, Promise Keepers was a Christian men's organization that focused on bringing men together to uh, worship God, to uh, learn, to, to go through specific teaching. It had a very strong emphasis on integrity, on uh, living a life that, that built a legacy from your family. And, and men from all over the country would come together to, to gather together in these places. And so this particular event was at a very, very large arena. Thousands of, of people are in attendance. And I was probably maybe fifth or sixth grade when I went with my dad and my uncle and a number of other men from the church. And really, before we, we get to that part of the story, that you kind of have to come back to, to the, the journey of going to Stockton. And we, for whatever unwise reason, decided to get in my uncle's old, 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 old uh, Chevy van. Um, that you could like see the outside from the inside, like through the rust holes, like that kind of van. And um, it, it was always having issues, but for some reason the thought was, yeah, that seems like a great vehicle to, to take on a road trip. And so we did. Um, and the vehicle dies where all vehicles go to die, uh, Laytonville. Um, and, and so... It, it dies in Laytonville, and I, this part of the, the process is a little fuzzy for me. I, I couldn't remember, and I didn't want to bother my dad. He was in Hawaii, and he doesn't need to be considering this right now. But I'm fairly certain one of my other uncles came uh, from, like, Mendocino County area, got us, and somehow we, we got the rest of the way. But this breakdown translated to us being extremely late for the evening session to the point where, like, we just didn't think we were going to make it. But 
the group arrives and just decides we're going to try, right? We're just going to see what we can see. And so when there's thousands of people attending a conference like this, parking isn't really available. Like it, it's not like, oh, we're just in this one parking complex and everybody else can just park on the street. We were parked like blocks, if not miles away from the stadium that we needed to get to. And I very clearly remember this, that me and my, my fifth grade self is sprinting right alongside an adult who is an active runner, and I'm keeping up, and we're just going, and, and I don't know if everybody else like, just got left behind, or it was me and Kim Price, and we were just going. <laughs> and as we enter into the stadium, we... we the, the entrance that we took put us up in the, the balcony area. And as we walk through this balcony, you hear thousands of men worshiping God. Thousands. As there is a prayer happening down in the lower areas, people are moving forward. And it was, it was the closing song of the evening. And... Now, obviously, you know, events leading up to this, you know, influenced the, 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 the process. And as we moved on to other days, the, the, the next day, we, we got to be part of the, the event. We got to receive the teaching. We got to participate in worship more. But there was just something about that specific time, the, the challenge leading up to it, something about... That being the, the first experience to, to see and to hear that was, was amazing. And so there was that specific event that, that stuck out in my mind. And then the second one really couldn't be much more different than that. Where the, the first event took place away from home, the, the, the second event that came to mind for me was, was just right here. Where the, the first event took place with thousands of people this time I was just by myself. You might not know this, but sometimes on Saturday evenings I, I come here and I will practice. Sometimes I'll come and, and if I'm learning a new song, I'll, I'll do that. Or, um, you know, if I need to just kind of pray for for you and the chairs that you're sitting in, I'll, I'll come and do that sometimes if I need to figure out why the microphone's making a weird sound and I need to, to do some, some technological <laughs> uh, fiddling, then I will do that here as well. But this particular evening I, w I was here and just playing through the, the songs that we were planning to play the next morning and, and I couldn't even tell you what the songs were. That, that really wasn't the important part of that evening. Uh, but as I was playing, the, the words of the songs just went away, and it, it just began to, to be a time of me singing praise to God. And as I was singing, as I was just here in this time, just, just for me, it was a time of complete closeness. A time where maybe I wasn't feeling as strong in terms of what was going to be happening the next day. Maybe I was dealing with some doubt. And in the midst of 
the doubt that I'm dealing with, the struggles that I'm dealing with, I'm able to be encouraged through the, the worship that, that's happening, strengthening that, that takes place for the, the day to come. And so those, those are two very different times of worship that, that I have experienced. And as we look back at the best times of worship, at the most impactful times of worship in our lives, there is a specific condition of the heart that is required. A condition that we are going to see as we take a look at Revelation 4, 5 today. Um, 4 and 5, excuse me. So with the, the churches addressed in the book of Revelation, there's been these, these letters that have gone out to the seven churches. John turns his gaze from the, the letters that he's writing to these seven churches, and, and it, it shifts from that communication towards God on his throne. This, this majestic sight that requires a response. It requires surrender. It requires submission. And if you recall over the past couple of weeks that we've been talking about the book of Revelation, it, it's not in chronological order necessarily, right? There's these different windows that, that are open to us that we get to see. And when we see those, that tagline that John is very uh, fond of in this book, and then I saw... <laughs> That's, that's a good indicator that we're, we're looking through a window, right? And so John is, is showing us this first window that we get to look through. And as we are going through this, as we're, we're looking at this study, one thing that we, we start to recognize that maybe is different for us, maybe it's different than from some of the other Revelation studies you've gone through, is that there is much less of a focus on the how and the when. And maybe more of a focus on the who and the why. How often when we're thinking about the book of Revelation do we focus on the how and the when? How is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? Is this going to happen to me? Is this going to happen to the people that I love? Has this already happened and I've missed the boat? Like, you know, all of those different questions come up that, that seem so relevant, that seem so important to, to our existence. But maybe if we stop focusing on that and instead focus on the who and the why, How often do we focus on the who and the why? Who is this message to? Who, who is, is giving this message? Who is this message from? Why is it happening? And while, sure, it's important to recognize that these events don't happen in chronological order, I think it probably is pretty relevant for us to consider what John sees first. Because when we look at what John is going to see first, it will orient everything else that we're going to be talking about. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. After this, after the, 
the time of the, the letters to the seven churches, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing and these were seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne... There was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second an ox, and the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. That's the first thing that John sees. And, and in seeing that, that, that vision sets the tone for everything else. And it's so, it's, it will be so easy as we go throughout this next few weeks, as we look at these other sections that come up in the book of Revelation, to focus on those things. But every moment that we're thinking about the other things that are to come, we're thinking about the, the different judgments, the bowls, the trumpets, the vials, you know, all of these different things that are going to be happening that are, are so attention-grabbing, God is still on his throne. So what we see here in Revelation chapter four is that John sees this image of a throne, and it's not just any throne, it is the throne. The throne where all attention, all affection are moving towards in all of the universe. It's that throne. There are 24 other thrones around this one. And okay, I'm going to pause for just a minute because it doesn't say who sits on these 24 thrones. But I want to I throw a theory out there because I like this theory and it's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> we're, we're now squarely in Matt's opinion, okay? Let's just be clear. So there are these 24 thrones and when we consider the number 24, I, I, I can't really think of very many times or very many names in the Bible that, that correspond to the number 24, but I can think of a lot of things that correspond to the number 12. And if we start thinking about the number 12, there were 12 disciples, right? And if we think of the number 12, there were 12 um, tribes of Israel. Those are the, the two twelves that kind of come to mind for me. And I will be clear, as this is something that I have considered, I decided to do some research, and other people have considered this as well. So I'm not just totally crazy here. This is other people considering this is a possibility. And so what if, just again, a thought, is of this 24, we have 24 representatives of the 12 tribes, and then we have, or maybe even the 
like named people of those 12 tribes. And then we have the 12 apostles that are there. And it's, well, that's an interesting idea. Maybe that's the case. But what would the point of having those 24 people be? Like what, what could be the reason? And as I was, was looking at this and as I was considering, what, what, is, what are those two different groups of people represent? The, the first group of 12 represents, you know, Old Testament, right? It, it represents a, a covenant, a promise that was made. It represents God pursuing his people. And then what does the second group of 12 people represent? The New Testament, right? It, it represents God's fulfillment of a promise that was made. It represents God still pursuing his people, not just the chosen tribe of Israel, but all of the nations of the earth. And so in, in these 24, we could see this, this complete representation of God keeping his promise. Uh, of first the demonstration of the promise that, that he, he chose this people, that he made a covenant with them. And then the second 12 saying, yeah, I not only made the covenant, but I kept it. Or maybe it's somebody totally different and I'm wrong. Um, but what a, a cool thing to think about. And, and as I was considering that, it, it came, it kind of brought me back to a point that for those of you that have been here for a while, you've, you've heard me talk about is that, that one of the, the most key points of demonstrating love is that it, love pursues. If, if I love something, I, I will pursue it. What, is it, what does it mean to, to pursue? It means that, that I, I set that specific focus as a priority. It means that I set aside the things that, that are maybe important to me in other ways and say, no, this is the, the most important thing. And, and I'm going to not only pursue it with my words, but I'm going to pursue it with my actions. I've talked before about how Kaylee would never talk to me when we were first uh, dating, or when we, not when we were first dating, but when, when I was first interested in her. She would, she was just shy. And so she would, would never like really say much beyond hi. And, and that was it. And I was like, man, I need to like crack this nut somehow. And so the way that we decided to, that I decided to pursue her was I would bribe her with junior mints. And I, I would bring junior mints to her every week that we were at, uh, at a youth group together. And I, I would give her junior mints and I would, would say, you know, you can have these, you know, kind of like stringing them along, you know, here you go. <laughs> and we, we would ha have this conversation. And, and we, that was how I pursued her. But, you know, obviously that's how it starts. But I can't stop pursuing my wife now that we're married. I, I'm still called to pursue the, the woman that I love that God has given to me. But just like that, that's how God pursues us. And that's how I see, you know, if we were to say that this is, this is truth, that this is what is actually happening here, that's the demonstration of God pursuing his people. So John also sees these living creatures, creatures that uh, if we were to stumble upon in the woods, we'd be like, this is a little weird. All these wings, all these eyes, all these different animal faces, you know, 
maybe if you're in Texas, you would still take the shot. But, you know, if anybody else is, is out of the woods, you know, you're probably just running. Um, and here these creatures are bringing praise to God. And so often, you know, I, I said before, there are going to be times where we don't have the answers. I, I can't tell you exactly what it is that these creatures represent exactly. But we don't have to get focused on the how and the when, but let's maybe just consider the who and the why. The lion. What, what does the lion kind of bring to your mind when you, you think of it? To me, the, the lion seems like a noble creature. It seems like something that has some nobility behind it. When you think of an ox, you think of strength. You th- think of power. When you think of an eagle, you think of speed. In this throne room, all of creation is present, bringing worship to their creator. This throne is the epicenter of reality. Revelation 5, 1 through 5 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Does that sound familiar? Like that song that we sing, everybody's like, oh, that's where it came from. Like people were just thinking we were talking about roots of David and scroll. No, it's from the Bible. This is important. And so here we see that, that God is not only the creator Right? In, in chapter 4 of Revelation, there's, there's this focus on creation. We see these, these different creatures that are, are totally foreign to us. We see God using light. But in chapter 5, we see that he's not only the creator, but also the redeemer. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb who was slain. David's root. What, what does David's root even mean? <laughs> That if we look back at prophecy, there's this, these promises that have been made to David. There's been promises that have been made to Abraham. To, throughout all of the Old Testament, these promises have been made. That, that Christ is the fulfillment of, that Jesus is the fulfillment of. This is not a six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus that we are, are worshiping in the throne room. This is a bloodied, conquering king who is on his throne. There is nothing cute or sweet or charming about what is happening in this place. There's a a quote from Eugene Peterson that says this about the throne room. It says, in worship, every sign of life and every impulse to holiness, every bit of beauty and every spark of vitality, Hebrew patriarchs, Christian apostles, wild animals, domesticated livestock, human beings, soaring birds are arranged around this throne center that pulses light, showing each at its best, picking up all the colors of the spectrum in order to show off the glories. Around this throne, everything is seen as it rightly is. 
Think about that for a moment. Think about just from a physics standpoint that we serve a God who controls the spectrum of light to adjust it to show creation as it perfectly should be. Beautiful and glorious. So what it... What does this even mean? Like, okay, Matt, that's great that that is happening. That is exciting. But what does that mean for me today? This picture, this, this truth, this reality, this is the reality of realities. This is as real as it can get. This reality is what, what brings us joy and peace. If God is on his throne... Who then can stand against me? What power does the enemy have against that? Let's let's think about a really important context for a minute. John is writing this letter to seven churches. He's not writing it to me. He's not writing it to you. He's writing it to seven churches in Asia specifically. He isn't saying, hey, this is something that's going to happen in the future at some point. John is saying, this is a present reality. God is on his throne today. He was on his throne before, and he's going to be on his throne tomorrow. The ultimate reality is that, again, like I said before, all attention, all affection is moving towards this throne. And sometimes if we look around and we, we look at our surroundings and say, you know, I don't, it doesn't feel like that's actually happening right now. <laughs> As I look around the world, it doesn't seem like that's the case, but we don't have to see it for it to be true. If we look at movies, you know, if you look at, at certain movies like The Matrix, or you look at TV shows like Stranger Things, and, and there's those films that have a reality that we see, and then there's something else that's happening that we don't see. There's another world that we don't know, the, the known and the unknown. John is bringing encouragement to the church, saying that God is on his throne, the Lamb has broken the seal, and that you and I now have been invited in this moment, today, right now, at this time, to worship Christ. To worship where Christ is exalted, where Christ reigns, where Christ rules. That is what is happening. That's what we just got done doing. As as we came here this morning, we came and we worshiped God. And in that moment, there is this convergence of space where, where what we were worshiping, what we were praising, what we were bringing glory to God was alongside the praise and the glory and honor that, was bring, that is currently being brought to God in this throne room right now. Time is a weird thing. But God is, is bigger than, than time and space. And so, so the, the events that are happening right now in this book of Revelation that we just read in Revelation chapter 4 are in line with the worship that we're bringing to God this morning. Those moments that we paused this morning to consider at the beginning of our time together are just that 
are those times where heaven and earth overlap. The worship that, that, that we're experiencing, the worship that we are bringing joins with the worship of the saints around the throne. So if there is peace, if there is joy, if there is stability to be had due to God being on his throne, due to that reality of realities, why is it that I so, so frequently seem to be missing those things from my life? If God is on his throne and, and we believe in, and we trust that, what? Why is it that so many followers of Christ are lacking peace, joy, stability, and all those things? Where does it go? It's because while God is on his throne, I, I put myself on my throne and say, well, I've got this. It's Okay. Bring all of your problems to me and I'll take care of them. Well, dear family, don't worry about involving God in this. I can take care of it for you. Well, I, I don't need to bring the issues of my workplace to God because I, I'm on my throne and I can take care of it. I don't need to, to deal with the, the depression or the anxiety that, that I'm feeling and facing because I'm on my throne and I, I can just handle it and it'll be fine. How's that working? I don't know. If, if somebody sitting in a, a kid's orange chair told me that, I mean, I need to see some more qualifications. I, I, don't, I don't know if you are necessarily the right guy for the job. I love you all, but you are all terrible at being God. Me setting up my throne and my kingdom is direct rebellion against God. When that is my focus, it's no wonder that there is all of a sudden a struggle with temptation that comes up. It's no wonder that when I'm sitting on my throne that there is all of a sudden a struggle with pride, that there's a struggle with anger, that there's a struggle with rebellion that's taking place in me. It's because I'm trying to be God when I have no business doing it. It's probably safe to say that most of us in our, our lives up to this point can look around and, and say, say that there have been some milestones that we have checked off, right? We, we have gotten to this place where we've checked off some, some things that we were, were planning for in our life. And maybe certain things didn't go the way you expected them to. But by and large, you know, okay, we've, we've made it out of grammar school. You made it out of high school. And, and now we're, we're off into life, right? Maybe you were one of those type A people that that had a spreadsheet when they were like five years old that said, okay, this is everything that's going to happen to my life. Kaylee, I'm looking at you. Uh, <laughs> Are you sure? Okay. <laughs> so maybe there was uh, on that checklist a, a graduating from high school. Maybe on that checklist it was you know, go to university or trade school or you know, something after that. Or, or maybe it was um, get a home get your, your first place, whether it's apartment or house or whatever, get that spouse, have a, a child. You know, I'm just saying the, the major ones that, that are common. I don't, 
you all have your own list. And as we go through life checking those things off, we still look around and we say, I'm still missing something. I, I still don't have that, that thing. There's still a longing that exists. Why is that longing there? Because I can't rule over my own life. I don't have the capacity, the strength, the wisdom, or the presence to rule over my own life. And so if I don't live a life of worship to the real king, what happens? I begin to, to feel alarmed at everything that's going on around me. And so when, when I start to feel alarmed at everything that's happening around me, I then start to try and soothe myself with anything that I can find to make that go away because it's scary. I'm freaked out about what's happening in my little kingdom, and so I need to soothe my anxiety with, insert your temptation here. Whether it's alcohol, drugs, porn, affairs, overeating. The, I mean, the list can go on and on and on and on. Those are the placebos that we try and hold on to that, said, that soothe the anxiety that we have when we say, well, I'm the king on the throne. I need to figure out the solution. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is what it's talking about. Creation setting itself up against the king. There was a, an illustration that I, I read about the other day that was, was kind of funny, but also just striking at the same time. Imagine for a moment, and you know, I know that there are people that aren't married here and I think we can still probably all come together and recognize what the reaction would be. Imagine for a moment that I, as a husband, come home to my house and there's a, a guy in my house with the rest of my family and I have no idea who he is. We'll call him Stan. Stan. <laughs> so Stan's in my house and I say, Stan, what are you doing here? Well, it doesn't seem like you've been doing a very good job being a father. It doesn't seem like you've been doing a very good job of, of being a husband to your wife. It doesn't seem like you've been leading your family in a way that you should. And so I'm just going to be, your be the father and the husband instead. There would be a helicopter landing in my front yard because of the mess that would happen as I eject this guy from my home. But that's what we're doing to God. And I never thought about it that way, but that's what we're doing. We're stepping into the, the home that, the, that he has created and saying, hey, it doesn't seem like you're really being God the way that you should, the way that I would expect, the way that I would appreciate. And so I'm just going to go ahead and take your place if that's okay. Really? Really? But there's some good news. To use a, another quote from Eugene Peterson, if you are weary of your life lurching from one partial satisfaction to another, interrupted by ditches of disappointment, <laughs> I'm here to tell you that you don't have to do that anymore. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> 
Revelation 5, 2 through 4. Let's read that one more time. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept. And I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. What does it mean to not be able to open the scroll? Let's think back to those, those things that, those placebos that we grabbed onto, that list that, that we made as we were growing up saying that this was what was going to make life work, right? This was the, everything that I needed. I thought being married was going to fix this. I thought having money was going to fix this. I thought that X was going to fix this, whatever that thing may have been. But it didn't. Church, we, we can't open the scroll. My pathetic wannabe kingdom does not entitle me to being able to open the scroll. There is no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that can open the scroll. John weeps because there's this realization that, and we're coming back to it again, third week in a row, all hope is lost. <laughs> That's, that's the feeling. And how often do we as grown adults have this re- realization or this, this feeling that all hope is lost? And then comes verse 5. The elder says, weep no more. Jesus can open the scroll. And just like that five minutes of all hope is lost and then Eve finds her toy five minutes later, just like that, John is saying all hope is lost and the elder says, no, it's not. No, it's not. The reason that we have access to peace, the reason we have access to stability is because Christ has opened the scroll. He has done what you and I could not what all of the money in the world was unable to do, what all of the sex in the world was unable to do, what all of the different substances in the world were unable to do, Christ has done. He has unlocked salvation. And not just salvation for me, salvation for all things. Salvation to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the scroll that has been opened. My name is written in that scroll. I've been invited We have all been invited into that throne room, into that throne, that throne where light is perfect, where light shows exactly who you are, the the glorious creation that you were made to be. That's where we've been invited to. Sometimes we are so focused on this life, on this struggle, And all of the the hardships and the difficulties that come with it that we don't even recognize that the reality, that reality of realities applies to us. My name is written in that scroll. And again, let's think about time for just a minute. This isn't my name's written in that scroll for 3,000 years from now. It's that my name is written in that scroll for today. 
that the God of the universe has offered me a gift saying, hey, I want to be with you for all of eternity, and I love you more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? Believe it. That's all you got to do. You just have to believe it. I have to get off of my throne and bow to the real one. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 